0: A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name is Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10 15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the nine o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters a building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class. Men and women are both invited. We're for all ages. Doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, Ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information, go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey, guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote these words, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You hear what he said there? Our enemy, the devil, has arguments (laughs) and God wants us to deal with them. And last Sunday, we looked at two of the arguments that Satan often uses to try to persuade people that homosexual behavior is really not that big a deal, and some of it is actually good and normal and pleasing to God. One of the arguments we looked at last time is that the kind of homosexual behavior that was condemned in the Bible was not the kind of homosexual behavior that's often practiced today that they would call loving and committed it was either pederastic homosexuality, which is homosexual acts with kids, or promiscuous homosexuality, which is homosexual behavior with many partners, or predatory homosexuality, which is homosexual behavior forced on someone else against their will. And we dealt with that argument last time. A second argument that Satan has tried to use is this. Well, we choose to ignore many other Bible commands in our day. We don't observe commands against using two kinds of cloth in one garment, for example. Most of us feel just fine about eating pork today, even though the Bible says it's unclean. So what's the big deal with the command against homosexual behavior? It's just another one of those commands that aren't for us today. It's not even relevant anymore. Those commands aren't. And we dealt with that argument last time, too. So I want us to read the passage again to get God's context. We need to hear God's word often. And then we'll look at a third argument that's often used that we need to be able to answer. This is God's word. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions Here's another argument you may have heard made by the sexual revolutionists. They've said things like this. The church is maturing, you see. We're maturing past the kind of thinking that homosexual behavior is sin, just as it moved past thinking that it was okay to have slaves. Have you heard that argument? The idea behind this argument is that the church is gradually maturing Sometimes they say it may take centuries, but gradually the church is growing up. And so as we mature, we leave behind some bad ideas that we used to hold on to that we shouldn't have been holding on to. And now we've left those behind. So they would say, look, there were Christians at one time who thought it was acceptable to own slaves. But the time finally came when most all of them realized that wasn't really good. So they moved on past that notion. Christians quit believing that. And they might say, there were Christians once who thought interracial marriage was wrong, but eventually most all of them realized it really wasn't wrong, so they moved on past that idea. And so they say, well, it's a similar situation. Christians used to think that same-sex marriage was wrong, but now we're finally beginning to realize that we just misunderstood. Now we realize it's Okay. So now we can move on beyond those mistakes of the past and just accept it as normal and good. But there's a problem with that, that argument. The truth is they have it exactly backward. Here would be a better analogy. At one time, there were some people who said they were Christians who thought slaveholding was acceptable to God. But there were other Christians who understood the Bible more clearly, who knew that it was wrong. Those Christians showed the slaveholders the sinfulness of slaveholding. They led the abolitionist movement, and eventually almost all Christians saw the truth, and slaveholding was abandoned. In the same way today, there are some people who say they're Christians who think that some homosexual behavior is acceptable to God just like some of our ancestors thought that slaveholding was acceptable to God. But other Christians who understand the Bible more clearly are helping them to see the sinfulness of that behavior. So we pray, soon all Christians will abandon the attempt to justify homosexual behavior, just as Christians abandon the attempt to justify slavery. So called Christians anyway. That's a much better analogy, and it fits the situation much better biblically. Here's another argument, a fourth argument. There are some who will try to claim that to demand celibacy of people who identify as homosexuals is unloving and unfair. Their argument would go something like this. They said, look, it would be unloving for God to require those who have homosexual desires to be committed to lifelong celibacy. If God provided heterosexual marriage as an outlet for heterosexual desires, Surely he would provide homosexual marriage for those with homosexual desires. Makes sense, doesn't it? So they would say, it's just not fair. You have heterosexual desires, you get to have a wife. I have homosexual desires, they would say, so I should get to have a partner too. It's only fair. But that kind of thinking overlooks the fact that there are many, many, many situations in life where God expects us to say no to our desires. I mean, that's part of what saying no to temptation is all about. All of us have to do that. All of us struggle with different kinds of temptations that we have to say no to. Obviously, there are many, many men who have very strong desires to have sex with women who are not their wives. And God says, you can't do that. That's sin. That's disgusting. It's going to lead to a bad outcome. You got to resist that desire and you got to resist it your whole life. There are people who have strong desires to have sex with kids. God says, No, that's wrong. You can't do that. There are single adults who are not in a marriage relationship who have a strong desire for heterosexual sex. God says, No, you can't do that. You've got to resist that desire. You've got to figure out ways to conquer that temptation. There are many other desires that Christians have that have to be resisted. There are people who have strong desires to get drunk. There are people who have strong desires to take drugs to escape life's difficulties. God says, no, you can't do that. And listen, here's the truth. There really are some people out there who testify that they once had strong homosexual desires, but at least in their case, I'm not saying this is every case, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, but in their case, God changed their desires. And some of those guys are married to women who are the mothers of their children and they're in a happy home. And they once said they had these strong homosexual desires. God changed it for them. But it's wrong for any of us to conclude that just because we have strong, overwhelming desires to do something means that it must be good. There must be a way to do it. (laughs) When God says a certain behavior is sinful, a strong desire to do that thing doesn't mean it's okay to satisfy that desire. It just isn't. Here's a fifth argument that they sometimes use. Some will say homosexual relationships are producing good fruit. So it must be okay. They might go to Matthew chapter seven, for example, a Sermon on the Mount and say, you know what? Jesus said you'll recognize them by their fruits. And they'll say, look at our fruit. Look at the same-sex marriages. They're producing good fruit. We're happy. We're serving society well. We're good employees. We're good citizens. So it's producing good fruit. It must be okay. Here's the problem with that argument. (laughs) What we're doing there is assuming that we get to decide what the good fruit is, what good fruit looks like. We don't get to decide that. God does. God's the one who tells us what good fruit is you realize that there's some men who are having sex with women who are not their wives, and they might be really, really nice guys, and they might be great employees, and they might be good citizens, and they might say, this satisfies a great need of mine. Does that mean they're bearing good fruit? Therefore, their adultery must be okay? (laughs) You know better than that. So we have to think about what it really means to produce good fruit. And God doesn't say, you guys just decide what good fruit is. No, Jesus doesn't make us guess. He tells us in the very next verse, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, what does the will of my father who is in heaven. You hear it? That's the good fruit. The one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, doing God's will. How do we learn what God's will is? We study God's word. He tells us what his will is. Jesus said on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And we cast out demons in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. Sounds like good fruit, doesn't it? This is what Jesus says. And I'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, who? You workers of lawlessness. They thought they could decide for themselves what good fruit was. Jesus says, no, you can't. God decides that. It's doing the will of the father and his will is revealed in his word. And he clearly says in his word, homosexual behavior is wrong. God says homosexual behavior is bad fruit because just as with other sin, God can see the end result. We can't. We're very short sighted. We look at right now and if we can't see a bad consequence happening today, we think, oh, it must be okay." But God's not that way. He's not being arbitrary. He sees down the road. He forbids things because he knows what it leads to. Ultimately, homosexual behavior does not result in human flourishing. does not result in good outcomes or good fruit. Here's the sixth argument. (laughs) This is another argument from the Bible that some people use. I bet you've heard this one. (laughs) It's from the Summer on the Mount, just like that other one. They say we must not condemn homosexual behavior because... Jesus tells us not to judge others. Judge not that you be not judged. (laughs) And what they will say is, look, God deals with each one of us differently. He deals with you one way. It may be wrong for you. He deals with me another way. There may be other things that are right or wrong for me. You don't have anything to say about what God does with me. You don't have anything to say about how God deals with me. You don't have anything to say about what's right or wrong for me. That's between me and God. So when you tell me homosexual behavior is sin, you are guilty of judging, and Jesus commands you not to do that. <laughs> I think this is probably the most quoted verse in the Bible by non-Christians. <laughs> judge not that you be not judged. Now, that verse is certainly in the Bible, isn't it? I mean, I just showed it to you on the screen. So there must be some sense in which we're forbidden to judge other people. But guys, we have to put all the scripture together here. <laughs> The Bible also says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? We better be judges in this life, he's saying. There's a kind of judging we're commanded to do. You hear what he's saying? Jesus also said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. There's a kind of judging we're commanded to do. So there's some sense in which we're commanded to judge, And there's some sins in which we are forbidden to judge. How does that work? Well, the word judge has different meanings in different contexts. That's not really that unusual. That's true of many words in Greek. It's true of many words in English. You know, one context, it means one thing. Another context, it means something else. So in some situations, to judge might mean to condemn someone to hell. In another situation, it might mean to evaluate the unspoken internal motivations of people. In other situations, it might mean to pronounce someone guilty. In other times, it simply means to make a decision about whether an action or behavior is right or wrong, to test or to discern or to prove the rightness or wrongness of things. And I think when practicing homosexuals tell us, don't you judge me, they're interpreting the word judge in that last sense. They say, well, Jesus is telling you, you should not say that my behavior is sinful. And they think when we say that homosexual behavior is sinful, we must be disobeying Jesus' command to judge not. But we know that's not what Jesus meant. We know that because there are too many other places in Scripture we are commanded to judge in that sense. Let me give you some more examples. Test everything. Hold fast that which is good. Good. That's the kind of judging we're commanded to do. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a disease-free bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. That's the kind of judging we're commanded to do. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? That's a command to judge. (laughs) Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the kind of judging we're commanded to do. Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. That's the kind of judging we're commanded to do. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's another kind of judging we're commanded to do. When biblical Christians, hopefully, graciously, and lovingly affirm that according to the Bible, according to God's word, homosexual behavior is sinful behavior, and therefore it should not be practiced, it should not be encouraged, it should not be endorsed by the state or anyone else, we're simply doing our best to obey commands like this. God says it's wrong. We're saying, yes, Lord, we agree with you. We're submitting to you. You're the one that decides, not us. We're just saying we agree. Okay, there's one more argument I want to mention today before we stop. And I've saved it for last intentionally because I personally think it may be the most difficult for many Christians. And it may cause some of us to have to examine ourselves more closely. Here's the argument. Look, we overlook lots of other sins in the church, If homosexual behavior is really sinful, why can't we just overlook it too? Like we do all these others. So they will say, look, you guys have overlooked many, many different kinds of ongoing sin in your churches. There are members in good standing who are having sex with their girlfriends. There are people who are going through unbiblical divorces. There are gluttons. There are people with ongoing anger problems in your church. There are men who are addicted to pornography in your church. So why do you draw the line when it comes to LGBTQ plus issues? Why don't we just live and let live? You let all those others live in your church and be in your church. Why don't you just let go of this one too? That stings, doesn't it? Because it boils down to an accusation that the church has just not done a very good job of restoring members who've fallen into sin. Or, if members refuse to be restored after they're approached lovingly and, and, and reproved lovingly, the churches haven't exercised church discipline. And listen, let's be honest, that's really a big, big problem in many of our churches. But while it may be true, and it's sad if it's true, that we've not done as well as we should have done in the past with church discipline, that's not a very good reason to say, well... We've blown it before. We might as well blow it again. <laughs> That's not very good thinking. We need to repent for blowing it before. And besides, listen, stay with me here. I really believe that most churches, if someone wanted to join that church, said, by the way, I'm having sex with my girlfriend. Is that okay? Or by the way, before I join the church, I want you to know I do have a problem with porn. I'm kind of addicted to it. Is that okay? Okay. I don't think biblical Christians would just say, oh yeah, that's no big deal. We got people that do a lot worse in our church. No, I don't, I hope not. <laughs> no, we would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's slow down here and let's take it. We need to talk because if you're living in sin, we've got some issues. No matter what the sin is, we got some issues we need to work through here. Some might challenge us and say, are you claiming to be without sin? How <laughs> dare you point out my sin? Remember, Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And we all have to admit, yes, we're all sinners. All of us at one time or another probably sinned and then tried to excuse it or rationalize it or justify it. But God eventually got our attention and we realized the horror of that kind of thinking. Yes, we still fail, but our attitude towards sin must be like God's. We agree with God. We hate sin and when we fall into it, we don't excuse it. We hate it. We know I'm so weak. I don't want to do this. Lord, please forgive me. I'm repeating. And if the repentance is genuine, he does forgive us. But we got to confess it as real sin. We don't continue to excuse it. You see my point? Yes, we may fall into it. We may fall into the same sin over and over and over. And God forgives us over and over if it's based on our weakness and not just Ex- excusing it and rationalizing and trying to make it make people believe or ourselves believe that it's okay we are totally dependent on God's grace but we must never ever call good what God calls evil see the difference okay let me see if i can sum this up we need to realize there are some very sweet wonderful people some of them may be our relatives and friends, caught up in this error of trying to justify LGBTQ plus behavior. And we must love them enough to want God's best for them, which means they must repent and trust Jesus and accept the truth about what God says about their behavior. We also need to realize with great grief that because our culture has embraced this sexual revolution as normal and good, many of our Christian leaders are being tempted to compromise God's truth because they're afraid they're going to lose people in their churches, maybe lose deacons, maybe lose influential people, and and they're softening, they're compromising. We have to be prepared to deal with that. So many people, including many who call themselves Christian, are caving on this issue. So we must not be surprised. We just need to be committed to standing firm on God's truth, no matter what. We're calling our class the standing firm class just for things like this. <laughs> when we see the world around us, even so-called Christians caving and saying we'll, we'll just soft pedal that. We won't talk about that. We're going to stand firm on God's truth, no matter what, by God's grace. It'll be by, only by God's grace. Not because we're good, not because we're strong, but because he enables us to do it. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. Can't say any better than that, can you? Paul's got more to say in Romans chapter one. We'll pick it up here next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you're teaching us in your word. We want to be people who stand firm in your word and on your truth. We don't want to be wimpy. We don't want to be compromisers. Lord, where the enemy attacks, we want to be found faithful in the battle until the end, standing firm. So help us to do that and get glory through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.